Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sense and Sensibility, Jane Austen's timeless tale of the Dashwood sisters set in Regency-era England. This is the 12th title in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series, plus new episodes, at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads Sense and Sensibility. Chapter 30 Mrs. Jennings came immediately to their room on her return, and without waiting to have her request of admissions answered, opened the door and walked in with a look of real concern. "'How do you do, my dear?' said she, in a voice of great compassion to Marianne, who turned away her face without attempting to answer. "'How is she, Miss Dashwood? Poor thing, she looks very bad. No wonder. I... it is but too true.' He is to be married very soon. A good-for-nothing fellow. I have no patience with him. Mrs. Taylor told me of it half an hour ago, and she was told by a particular friend of Miss Gray herself, else I am sure I should not have believed it. And I was almost ready to sink as it was. Well, said I, all I can say is that if this be true, he has used a younger lady of my acquaintance abominably ill, and I wish with all my soul his wife may plague his heart out. And so I shall always say, my dear, you may depend on it. I have no notion of men's going on in this way, and if ever I meet him again, I will give him such a dressing as he has not had this many a day. But there is one comfort, my dear Miss Marianne. He is not the only young man in the world worth having, and with your pretty face you will never want admirers. Well, poor thing, I won't disturb her any longer, for she had better have her cry out at once and have done with. The Parrys and Sandersons luckily are coming tonight, you know, and that will amuse her. She then went away, walking on tiptoe out of the room, as if she supposed her young friend's affliction could be increased by noise. Marianne, to the surprise of her sister, determined on dining with them. Eleanor even advised her against it, but no, she would go down. She could bear it very well, and the bustle about her would be less. Eleanor, pleased to have her governed for a moment by such a motive, though believing it hardly possible that she could sit out the dinner, said no more, and adjusting her dress for her as well as she could, while Marianne still remained on the bed, was ready to assist her into the dining-room as soon as they were summoned to it. When there, though looking most wretchedly, she ate more and was calmer than her sister had expected. Had she tried to speak— or had she been conscious of half Mrs. Jennings' well-meant but ill-judged attentions to her, this calmness could not have been maintained. But not a syllable escaped her lips, and the abstraction of her thoughts preserved her in ignorance of everything that was passing before her. Eleanor, who did justice to Mrs. Jennings' kindness, though its effusions were often distressing, and sometimes almost ridiculous, made her those acknowledgments, and returned those civilities which her sister could not make or return for herself. Their good friend saw that Marianne was unhappy, and felt that everything was due to her 
which might make her at all less so. She treated her, therefore, with all the indulgent fondness of a parent towards a favourite child on the last day of its holidays. Marianne was to have the best place by the fire, was to be tempted to eat by every delicacy in the house, and to be amused by the relation of all the news of the day. Had not Eleanor, in the sad countenance of her sister, seen a check to all mirth, she could have been entertained by Mrs. Jennings' endeavours to cure a disappointment in love by a variety of sweetmeats and olives and a good fire. As soon, however, as the consciousness of all this was forced by continual repetition on Marianne, she could stay no longer. With a hasty exclamation of misery, and a sign to her sister not to follow her. She directly got up and hurried out of the room. "'Poor soul!' cried Mrs. Jennings, as soon as she was gone. "'How it grieves me to see her! And I declare, if she has not gone away without finishing her wine, and the dried cherries, too! Oh, Lord, nothing seems to do her any good. I am sure if I knew of anything she would like, I would send all over the town for it.' Well, it is the oddest thing to me that a man should use such a pretty girl so ill. But when there is plenty of money on one side and next to none on the other, Lord bless you, they care no more about such things. The lady, then, Miss Gray, I think you called her, is very rich. Oh, fifty thousand pounds, my dear. Did you ever see her? A smart, stylish girl, they say, but... Not handsome. I remember her aunt very well, Biddy Henshaw. She married a very wealthy man. But the family are all rich together. Fifty thousand pounds. And by all accounts, it won't come before it's wanted, for they say he is all to pieces. No wonder, dashing about with his curricle and hunters. Well, it don't signify talking, but when a young man, be who he will, comes and makes love to a pretty girl and promises marriage, he has no business to fly off from his own word, only because he grows poor, and a richer girl is ready to have him. Why don't he, in such a case, sell his horses, let his house, turn off his servants, and make a thorough reform at once? I warrant you. "'Miss Marianne would have been ready to wait till matters came round. "'But that won't do nowadays. "'Nothing in the way of pleasure can ever be given up by the young men of this day. "'Do you know what kind of a girl Miss Gray is? "'Is she said to be amiable? "'I never heard any harm of her. "'Indeed, I hardly ever heard her mentioned, "'except that Mrs. Taylor did say this morning "'that one day Miss Walker hinted to her "'that she believed Mr. and Mrs. Ellison "'would not be sorry to have Miss Gray married, "'for she and Mrs. Ellison could never agree. "'And, and who are the Ellisons? "'Her guardians, my dear.' "'But now she is of age and may choose for herself, "'and a pretty choice she has made. "'What now?' "'After pausing a moment, "'your poor sister is gone to her own room, I suppose, "'to moan by herself. "'Is there nothing one can get to comfort her? "'Poor dear, it seems quite cruel to let her be alone. "'Well, by and by we shall have a few friends, "'and that will amuse her a little. "'What shall we play at?' She hates whist, I know, but is there no round game she cares for? Dear ma'am, this kindness is quite unnecessary. 
Marianne, I dare say, will not leave her room again this evening. I shall persuade her, if I can, to go early to bed, for I am sure she wants rest. I, I believe that will be the best for her. Let her name her own supper and go to bed. Lord, no wonder she has been looking so bad and so cast down this last week or two, for this matter, I suppose, has been hanging over her head as long as that. And so the letter that came today finished it. Ah, poor soul. I am sure if I had had a notion of it, I would not have joked her about it for all my money. But then, you know, how should I guess such a thing? I made sure of its being nothing but a common love letter. And you know, young people like to be laughed at about them. Lord, how concerned Sir John and my daughters will be when they hear it. If I had my senses about me, I might have called in Conduit Street on my way home and told them of it. But I shall see them tomorrow. It would be unnecessary, I am sure, for you to caution Mrs. Palmer and Sir John against ever naming Mr. Willoughby, or making the slightest allusion to what has passed before my sister. Their own good nature must point out to them the real cruelty of appearing to know anything about it when she is present, and the less that may ever be said to myself on the subject, the more my feelings will be spared, as you, my dear madam, will easily believe. Oh, Lord, yes, that I do indeed. It must be terrible for you to hear it talked of. And as for your sister, I am sure I would not mention a word about it to her for the world. You saw I did not all dinner time. Nor more would Sir John, nor my daughters, for they are all very thoughtful and considerate, especially if I give them a hint, as I certainly will. For my part, I think the less that is said about such things, the better the sooner tis blown over and forgot. And what does talking ever do, you know? In this affair it can only do harm, more so perhaps than in many cases of a similar kind, for it has been attended by circumstances which, for the sake of everyone concerned in it, make it unfit to become the public conversation. I must do this justice to Mr. Willoughby. He has broken no positive engagement with my sister, Law, my dear, don't pretend to defend him. No positive engagement, indeed, after taking her all over Allenham House and fixing on the very rooms they were to live in hereafter. Eleanor, for her sister's sake, could not press the subject farther, and she hoped it was not required of her for Willoughby's, since, though Marianne might lose much, he could gain very little by the enforcement of the real truth. After a short silence on both sides, Mrs. Jennings, with all her natural hilarity, burst forth again. Well, my dear, tis a true saying about an ill wind, for it will be all the better for Colonel Brandon. He will have her at last, ay, that he will. Mind me now, if they ain't married by midsummer. Oh, Lord, how he'll chuckle over this news. I hope he will come tonight. It will be all to one a better match for your sister. Two thousand a year without debt or drawback, except the little love-child. Indeed, I, I had forgot her, but she may be prenticed out at a small cost, and then what does it signify? Delaford is a nice place. I can tell you exactly what I call a nice, old-fashioned place, full of comforts and conveniences, quite shut in with great garden walls that are covered with the best fruit trees in the country. 
and such a mulberry tree in one corner. Oh, Lord, how Charlotte and I did stuff the only time we were there. Then there is a dovecot, some delightful stew ponds, and a very pretty canal, and everything, in short, that one could wish for. And moreover, it is close to the church, and only a quarter of a mile from the turnpike road, so it is never dull, for if you only go and sit up in the old yew arbor behind the house, you may see all the carriages that pass along. Oh, "'Tis a nice place. A butcher hard by in the village, and the parsonage house within a stone's throw. To my fancy, a thousand times prettier than Barton Park, where they are forced to send three miles for their meat, and have not a neighbour nearer than your mother. Well, I shall spirit up the colonel as soon as I can. One shoulder of mutton, you know, drives another down. "'if we can but put Willoughby out of her head. "'Aye, if we can do that, ma'am,' said Eleanor, "'we shall do very well with or without Colonel Brandon.' "'And then, rising, she went away to join Marianne, "'whom she found, as she expected, in her own room, "'leaning in silent misery over the small remains of a fire, "'which, till Eleanor's entrance, had been her only light.' "'You had better leave me,' was all the notice that her sister received from her. "'I will leave you,' said Eleanor, "'if you will go to bed.' But this, from the momentary perverseness of impatient suffering, she at first refused to do. Her sister's earnest, though gentle persuasion, however, soon softened her to compliance, and Eleanor saw her lay her aching head on the pillow, and as she hoped, in a way to get some quiet rest before she left her. In the drawing-room, whither she then repaired, she was soon joined by Mrs. Jennings with a wine-glass full of something in her hand. "'My dear,' said she, entering, "'I have just recollected that I have some of the finest old Constantia wine in the house that ever was tasted, so I have brought a glass of it for your sister.' "'My poor husband! How fond he was of it! "'Whenever he had a touch of his old colicky gout, "'he said it did him more good than anything else in the world. "'Do take it to your sister.' "'Dear ma'am,' replied Eleanor, "'smiling at the difference of the complaints for which it was recommended, "'how good you are! "'But I have just left Marianne in bed, and I hope almost asleep, "'and as I think nothing will be of so much service to her as rest.' If you will give me leave, I will drink the wine myself. Mrs. Jennings, though regretting that she had not been five minutes earlier, was satisfied with the compromise, and Eleanor, as she swallowed the chief of it, reflected that though its effects on a colicky gout were at present of little importance to her, its healing powers on a disappointed heart might be as reasonably tried on herself as on her sister. Colonel Brandon came in while the party were at tea, and by his manner of looking round the room for Marianne, Eleanor immediately fancied that he neither expected nor wished to see her there, and in short, he was already aware of what occasioned her absence. Mrs. Jennings was not struck by the same thought, for soon after his entrance she walked across the room to the tea-table where Eleanor presided and whispered, "'The Colonel looks as grave as ever you see.' "'He knows nothing of it. Do tell him, my dear.' 
He shortly afterwards drew a chair close to hers, and with a look which perfectly assured her of his good information, inquired after her sister. "'Marianne is not well,' said she. "'She has been indisposed all day, and we have persuaded her to go to bed. "'Perhaps then,' he hesitatingly replied, "'what I heard this morning may be—there may be more truth in it than I could possibly believe possible at first. "'What did you hear?' "'That a gentleman whom I had reason to think, in short, that a man whom I knew to be engaged, but how shall I tell you, if you know it already, as surely you must, I may be spared. You mean, answered Eleanor, with forced calmness, Mr. Willoughby's marriage with Miss Gray. Yes, we do know it all. This seems to have been a day of general elucidation, for this very morning first unfolded it to us. Mr. Willoughby is unfathomable. Where did you hear it? "'in a stationer's shop in Pell Mill, where I had business. two ladies were waiting for their carriage, "'and one of them was giving the other an account of the intended match "'in a voice so little attempting concealment "'that it was impossible for me not to hear it all. "'The name of Willoughby, John Willoughby, frequently repeated, first caught my attention, "'and what followed was a positive assertion that Everything was now finally settled respecting his marriage with Miss Gray. It was no longer to be a secret. It would take place even within a few weeks, with many particulars of preparations and other matters. One thing, especially, I remember, because it served to identify the man still more. As soon as the ceremony was over, they were to go to Coombe Magna, his seat in Somersetshire. My astonishment... "'but it would be impossible to describe what I felt. "'The communicative lady, I learned, on inquiry, "'for I stayed in the shop till they were gone, "'was a Mrs. Ellison, "'and that, as I have since been informed, "'is the name of Miss Gray's guardian. "'It is. "'But have you likewise heard that Miss Gray has fifty thousand pounds? "'In that, if in anything, we may find an explanation. "'It may be so, but Willoughby is capable.' "'At least, I think.' He stopped a moment, then added in a voice which seemed to distrust itself, "'And your sister, how did she—' "'Her sufferings have been very severe. "'I have only to hope that they may be proportionately short. "'It has been—it is a most cruel affliction. "'Till yesterday, I believe, she never doubted his regard, "'and even now, perhaps. "'But I am—' almost convinced that he never was really attached to her. He has been very deceitful, and in some points there seems a hardness of heart about him. Ah, uh, uh, said Colonel Brandon. There is indeed. But your sister does not, I think you said so, she, she does not consider quite as you do. You know her disposition, and may believe how eagerly she would still justify him if she could. He made no answer. And soon afterwards, by the removal of the tea-things and the arrangement of the card-parties, the subject was necessarily dropped. Mrs. Jennings, who had watched them with pleasure while they were talking, and who expected to see the effect of Miss Dashwood's communication in such an instantaneous gaiety on Colonel Brandon's side, as might have become a man in the bloom of youth, of hope and happiness, saw him 
with amazement, remain the whole evening more serious and thoughtful than usual. Chapter 31 From a night of more sleep than she had expected, Marianne awoke the next morning to the same consciousness of misery in which she had closed her eyes. Eleanor encouraged her as much as possible to talk of what she felt, and before breakfast was ready, they had gone through the subject again and again, and with the same steady conviction and affectionate counsel on Eleanor's side, the same impetuous feelings and varying opinions on Marianne's as before. Sometimes she could believe Willoughby to be as unfortunate and as innocent as herself, and at others lost every consolation in the impossibility of acquitting him. At one moment she was absolutely indifferent to the observation of all the world. At another she would seclude herself from it forever, and at a third could resist it with energy. In one thing, however, she was uniform. When it came to the point in avoiding where it was possible the presence of Mrs. Jennings and in a determined silence when obliged to endure it, her heart was hardened against the belief of Mrs. Jennings entering into her sorrows with any compassion. No, no, it cannot be, she cried. She cannot feel. Her kindness is not sympathy. Her good nature is not tenderness. All that she wants is gossip, and she only likes me now because I supply it. Eleanor had not needed this to be assured of the injustice to which her sister was often led in her opinion of others by the irritable refinement of her own mind, and the too great importance placed by her on the delicacies of a strong sensibility and the graces of a polished manner. Like half the rest of the world— if more than half there be that are clever and good, Marianne, with excellent abilities and an excellent disposition, was neither reasonable nor candid. She expected from other people the same opinions and feelings as her own, and she judged of their motives by the immediate effect of their actions on herself. Thus a circumstance occurred while the sisters were together in their own room after breakfast, which sunk the heart of Mrs. Jennings still lower in her estimation, because, through her own weakness, it chanced to prove a source of fresh pain to herself, though Mrs. Jennings was governed in it by an impulse of the utmost goodwill. With a letter in her outstretched hand, and countenance gaily smiling from the persuasion of bringing comfort, she entered the room, saying, "'Now, my dear, I bring you something that I am sure will do you good.' Marianne heard enough. In one moment her imagination placed before her a letter from Willoughby, full of tenderness and contrition, explanatory of all that had passed, satisfactory, convincing, and instantly followed by Willoughby himself, rushing eagerly into the room to enforce, at her feet, by the eloquence of his eyes.' the assurances of his letter. The work of one moment was destroyed by the next. The handwriting of her mother, never till then unwelcome, was before her, 
and in the acuteness of the disappointment which followed, such an ecstasy of more than hope, she felt as if, till that instant, she had never suffered. The cruelty of Mrs. Jennings, no language within her reach in her moments of happiest eloquence, could have expressed, and now she could reproach her only by the tears which streamed from her eyes with passionate violence, a reproach, however, so entirely lost on its object, that after many expressions of pity she withdrew, still referring her to the letter of comfort. But the letter when she was calm enough to read it, brought little comfort. Willoughby filled every page. Her mother, still confident of their engagement and relying as warmly as ever on his constancy, had only been roused by Eleanor's application to entreat from Marianne greater openness towards them both, and this with such tenderness towards her. Such affection for Willoughby, and such a conviction of their future happiness in each other, that she wept with agony through the whole of it. All her impatience to be at home again now returned. Her mother was dearer to her than ever, dearer through the very excess of her mistaken confidence in Willoughby, and she was wildly urgent to be gone. Eleanor, Unable herself to determine whether it were better for Marianne to be in London or at Barton, offered no counsel of her own except of patience till their mother's wishes could be known, and at length she obtained her sister's consent to wait for that knowledge. Mrs. Jennings left them earlier than usual, for she could not be easy till the Middletons and Palmers were able to grieve as much as herself, and positively refusing Eleanor's offered attendance, went out alone for the rest of the morning. Eleanor, with a very heavy heart, aware of the pain she was going to communicate, and perceiving by Marianne's letter how ill she had succeeded in laying any foundation for it, then sat down to write her mother an account of what had passed, and to entreat her directions for the future, while Marianne, who came into the drawing-room on Mrs. Jennings going away, remained fixed at the table where Eleanor wrote, watching the advancement of her pen, grieving over her for the hardship of such a task, and grieving still more fondly over its effect on her mother. In this manner, they had continued about a quarter of an hour, when Marianne, whose nerves could not then bear any sudden noise, was startled by a rap at the door. "'How can this be?' cried Eleanor. "'So early, too. I thought we had been safe.' Marianne moved to the window. "'It is Colonel Brandon,' said she, with vexation. "'We are never safe from him.' He will not come in, as Mrs. Jennings is from home. I will not trust to that, retreating to her own room. A man who has nothing to do with his own time has no conscience in his intrusion on that of others. The event proved her conjecture right, though it was founded on injustice and error, for Colonel Brandon did come in, and Eleanor, 
who was convinced that solicitude for Marianne brought him thither, and who saw that solicitude in his disturbed and melancholy look, and in his anxious, though brief inquiry after her, could not forgive her sister for esteeming him so lightly. "'I met Mrs. Jennings in Bond Street,' said he, after the first salutation. "'and she encouraged me to come on, and I was, well, the more easily encouraged, "'because I thought it probable that I might find you alone, "'which I was very desirous of doing. "'My object, my wish, my sole wish in desiring it, I hope, I believe it is, "'is to be a means of giving comfort. "'No, I must not say comfort, not, not present comfort, but... Conviction. Lasting conviction to your sister's mind. My regard for her, for yourself, for your mother. Will you allow me to prove it by relating some circumstances which nothing but a very sincere regard, nothing but an earnest desire of being useful? I think I am justified, though where so many hours have been spent in convincing myself that I am right, is there not some reason to fear I may be wrong? He stopped. I understand you, said Eleanor. You have something to tell me of Mr. Willoughby that will open his character farther. Your telling it will be the greatest act of friendship that can be shown Marianne. "'My gratitude will be ensured immediately by any information tending to that end, "'and hers must be gained by it in time. "'Pray, pray, let me hear it. "'You shall. "'And, to be brief, when I quitted Barton last October— "'but this will give you no idea. "'I must go further back. "'You will, you will find me a very awkward narrator, Miss Dashwood.' I, I hardly know where to begin. A short account of myself, I believe, will be necessary, and it shall be a short one. On such a subject, sighing heavily, can I have little temptation to be diffuse? He stopped a moment for recollection, and then, with another sigh, went on. You have probably entirely forgotten a conversation— it is not to be supposed that it could make any impression on you. A conversation between us one evening at Barton Park. It was the evening of a dance in which I, I alluded to a lady I had once known as resembling, in some measure, your sister, Marianne. Indeed, answered Eleanor, I have not forgotten it. He looked pleased by this remembrance, and added, if I am not deceived by the uncertainty, the partiality of tender recollection, there is a very strong resemblance between them, as well in mind as person. The same warmth of heart, the same eagerness of fancy and spirits. This lady was one of my nearest relations, an orphan from her infancy and under the guardianship of my father. Our ages were nearly the same, and from our earliest years we were playfellows and friends. I cannot remember the time when I did not love Eliza, and my affection for her, as we grew up, was such as perhaps 
judging from my present forlorn and cheerless gravity, you might think me incapable of having ever felt. Hers, for me, was, I believe, fervent as the attachment of your sister to Mr. Willoughby, and it was, though from a different cause, no less unfortunate. At seventeen, she was lost to me forever. She was married, married against her inclination to my brother. Her fortune was large, and our family estate much encumbered. And this, I fear, is all that can be said for the conduct of one who was at once her uncle and guardian. My brother did not deserve her. He did not even love her. I had hoped that her regard for me would support her under any difficulty, and for some time it did. But at last, the misery of her situation, for she experienced great unkindness, overcame all her resolution. And though she had promised me that nothing— Oh, but how blindly I relate! I have never told you how this was brought on. We were within a few hours of eloping together for Scotland. The treachery, or the folly, of my cousin's maid betrayed us. I was banished to the house of a relation far distant, and she was allowed no liberty, no society, no amusement, till my father's point was gained. I had depended on her fortitude too far, and the blow was a severe one. But had her marriage been happy, so young as I then was, a few months might have reconciled me to it, or at least I should not have now to lament it. This, however, was not the case. My brother had no regard for her. His pleasures were not what they ought to have been, and from the first he treated her unkindly. The consequence of this upon a mind so young, so lively, so inexperienced as Mrs. Brandon's, was but too natural. She resigned herself at first to all the misery of her situation, and happy had it been if she had not lived to overcome those regrets which the remembrance of me occasioned. But can we wonder that— with such a husband to provoke inconstancy, and without a friend to advise or restrain her, for my father lived only a few months after their marriage, and I was with my regiment in the East Indies, she should fall. Had I remained in England, perhaps, but I meant to promote the happiness of both by removing from her for years, and for that purpose had procured my exchange— the shock which her marriage had given me, he continued, in a voice of great agitation, was of trifling weight, was nothing to what I felt when I heard, about two years afterwards, of her divorce. It was that which threw this gloom. Even now, the recollection of what I suffered, he could say no more and rising hastily walked for a few minutes about the room. Eleanor, affected by his relation, and still more by his distress, could not speak. He saw her concern, and coming to her, took her hand, pressed it, and kissed it with grateful respect. 
A few minutes more of silent exertion enabled him to proceed with composure. It was nearly three years after this unhappy period before I returned to England. My first care, when I did arrive, was, of course, to seek for her, but the search was as fruitless as it was melancholy. I could not trace her beyond her first seducer, and there was every reason to fear that she had removed from him only to sink deeper in a life of sin. Her legal allowance was not adequate to her fortune, nor sufficient for her comfortable maintenance, and I learned from my brother that the power of receiving it had been made over some months before to another person. He imagined, and calmly could he imagine it, that her extravagance and consequent distress had obliged her to dispose of it for some immediate relief. At last, however, and after I had been six months in England, I did find her. Regard for a former servant of my own, who has since fallen into misfortune, carried me to visit him in a sponging house where he was confined for debt. And there, in the same house, under a similar confinement, was my unfortunate sister. So altered, so faded, "'worn down by acute suffering of every kind. "'Hardly could I believe the melancholy and sickly figure before me "'to be the remains of the lovely, blooming, healthful girl "'on whom I had once doted. "'What I endured in so beholding her. "'But I have no right to wound your feelings by attempting to describe it. "'I have pained you too much already.' that she was, to all appearance, in the last stage of a consumption, was, yes, in such a situation, it was my greatest comfort. Life could do nothing for her beyond giving time for a better preparation for death. And that was given. I saw her placed in comfortable lodgings and under proper attendance, I visited her every day during the rest of her short life, and I was with her in her last moments. Again, he stopped to recover himself, and Eleanor spoke her feelings in an exclamation of tender concern at the fate of his unfortunate friend. Your sister, I hope, cannot be offended, said he. "'by the resemblance I have fancied between her and my poor disgraced relation. "'Their fates, their fortunes, cannot be the same, "'and had the natural sweet disposition of the one been guarded by a firmer mind "'or a happier marriage, she might have been all that you will live to see the other be. "'But huh, to what does all this lead?' "'I seem to have been distressing you for nothing. "'Oh, Miss Dashwood, a subject such as this, "'untouched for fourteen years. "'It is dangerous to handle it at all. "'I will be more collected, more concise. "'She left to my care her only child, a little girl, "'the offspring of her first guilty connection, "'who was then about three years old.' 
She loved the child and had always kept it with her. It was a valued, a precious trust to me, and gladly would I have discharged it in the strictest sense by watching over her education myself, had the nature of our situations allowed it. But I had no family, no home, and my little Eliza was therefore placed at school. I saw her there whenever I could, and after the death of my brother, which happened about five years ago, and which left to me the possession of the family property, she visited me at Delaford. I called her a distant relation, but I am well aware that I have in general been suspected of a much nearer connection with her. It is now three years ago. She had just reached her fourteenth year, that I removed her from school to place her under the care of a very respectable woman residing in Dorsetshire, who had the charge of four or five other girls of about the same time of life, and for two years I had every reason to be pleased with her situation. But last February, almost a twelve-month back, she suddenly disappeared. I had allowed her, imprudently, as it has since turned out, at her earnest desire to go to Bath with one of her young friends, who was attending her father there for his health. I knew him to be a very good sort of man, and I thought well of his daughter, better than she deserved, for, with her most obstinate and ill-judged secrecy, she would tell nothing, would give no clue, though she certainly knew all. He, her father, a well-meaning but not a quick-sighted man, could really, I believe, give no information, for he had been generally confined to the house while the girls were raging over the town and making what acquaintance they chose, and he tried to convince me, as thoroughly as he was convinced himself, of his daughter's being entirely unconcerned in the business. In short, I could learn nothing but that she was gone. All the rest, for eight long months, was left to conjecture. What I thought, what I feared, may be imagined, and what I suffered, too. Good heavens, cried Eleanor, could, could it be, could Willoughby? The first news that reached me of her, he continued, came in a letter from herself last October. It was forwarded to me from Delaford, and I received it on the very morning of our intended party to Whitwell. And this was the reason of my leaving Barton so suddenly, which I am sure must at the time have appeared strange to everybody, and which, I believe, gave offence to some. Little did Mr. Willoughby imagine, I suppose, when his looks censured me for incivility in breaking up the party, that I was called away to the relief of one whom he had made poor and miserable. But had he known it, what would it have availed? Would he have been less gay or less happy in the smiles of your sister? No, he had already done that, which no man who can feel for another would do. He had left the girl whose youth and innocence he had seduced in a situation of the utmost distress, with no creditable home, no help, no friends, ignorant of his address. He had left her, promising to return. 
he neither returned, nor wrote, nor relieved her. This is beyond everything, exclaimed Eleanor. His character is now before you, expensive, dissipated, and worse than both. Knowing all this, as I have now known it many weeks, guess what I must have felt on seeing your sister as fond of him as ever, and on being assured that she was to marry him. Guess what I must have felt for all your sakes. When I came to you last week and found you alone, I came determined to know the truth, though irresolute what to do when it was known. My behavior must have seemed strange to you then, but now you will comprehend it. To suffer you all to be so deceived, to see your sister. But what could I do? I had no hope of interfering with success, and sometimes I thought your sister's influence might yet reclaim him. But now, after such dishonorable usage, who can tell what were his designs on her? Whatever they may have been, however, she may now, and hereafter, doubtless will turn with gratitude towards her own condition when she compares it with that of my poor Eliza, when she considers the wretched and hopeless situation of this poor girl, and pictures to herself, with an affection for him so strong, still as strong as her own, and with a mind tormented by self-reproach, which must attend her through life. Surely this comparison must have its use with her. She will feel her own sufferings to be nothing. They proceed from no misconduct and can bring no disgrace. On the contrary, every friend must be made still more her friend by them. Concern for her unhappiness and respect for her fortitude under it must strengthen every attachment. Use your own discretion, however, in communicating to her what I have told you. You must know best what will be its effect. But had I not seriously, and from my heart believed it might be of service, might lessen her regrets, I would not have suffered myself to trouble you with this account of my family afflictions, with a recital which may seem to have been intended to raise myself at the expense of others. Eleanor's thanks followed this speech with grateful earnestness, attended too with the assurance of her expecting material advantage to Marianne from the communication of what had passed. I have been more pained, said she, by her endeavours to acquit him than by all the rest, for it irritates her mind more than the most perfect conviction of his unworthiness can do. Now, though, at first she will suffer much, I am sure she will soon become easier. Have you, she continued, after a short silence, ever seen Mr. Willoughby since you left him at Barton? Yes, he replied gravely. Once I have. One meeting was unavoidable. Eleanor, startled by his manner, looked at him anxiously, saying, What? Have you met him to? I could meet him no other way. Eliza had confessed to me, though most reluctantly, the name of her lover, and when he returned to town, 
which was within a fortnight after myself, we met by appointment. He to defend, I to punish his conduct. We returned unwounded, and the meeting, therefore, never got abroad. Eleanor sighed over the fancied necessity of this, but to a man and a soldier she presumed not to censure it. Such, said Colonel Brandon, after a pause, has been the unhappy resemblance between the fate of mother and daughter, and so imperfectly have I discharged my trust. Is she still in town? No. As soon as she recovered from her lying in, where I found her near her delivery, I removed her and her child into the country, and there she remains. Recollecting soon afterwards that he was probably dividing Eleanor from her sister, he put an end to his visit, receiving from her again the same grateful acknowledgments, and leaving her full of compassion and esteem for him. Thank you for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Sense and Sensibility. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Pride and Prejudice, Sunshine Sketches of a Little Town, The Scarlet Pimpernel, Vanity Fair, Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, and The Woman in White. You can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.